The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Optimistic, hopeful. You know, one of the things as we look at Scripture and uh, as you evaluate you know, as a book, uh, who, would, who would found a religion, humanly speaking, uh, on such horrible, flawed characters as we see in Scripture? One of the, for me, really the hopeful things in Scripture that it's true and that it truly is from God is because no human being would write so honestly about the, the fallenness and wickedness of humanity. But we see throughout Scripture that it paints a very true and accurate picture of what humanity is. And one of the things in this story that I find just remarkable, it's, it's horrible for a lot of reasons. I mean, it deals with rape and murder and pillaging. And, uh, but that's really not what's horrible about this story. For me, what makes this story so terrible is that I'm not, I, I am, I'm still, after hours of study, I still don't know who the bad guys are or the good guys. Right? You look through this story, and, you know, we like stories, we like fairy tales where, you know, the good guy wears the white hat and he's noble and brave and virtuous. And, and we can recognize the bad guys because they're bad. They dress in black and they're corrupt and they're wicked. And there's this conflict between the good guys and the bad guys. And in a good story, the good guys always win, right? Well, oftentimes in Scripture, it's not put out that way. In fact, as you look through this story, one of the things that's remarkable is that the, the bad guy actually turns out to be this big puppy dog who's actually kind of a good guy. The heroes of the story turn out to be black villains, horrible people. Right? Jacob, who just came off this great victory, uh, got his name changed to Israel, one who wrestles with God, comes out as, and he comes into chapter 34, kind of riding high as, he's kind of, kind of arrived as a real patriarch. He's like one of the three now. Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, right? Super dad, super godly man. In chapter 34, he is a loser, okay? And it's like, what do you do with this, right? What do you do with this? Well, I want to go through, and um, it really is a great lens on what we are as human beings. One of the reasons we like stories with really good guys and really bad guys is because we always want to identify ourselves with the good guys, right? And uh, our enemies and those other people as the bad guys. And we, we like those stories because it puts us in the kind of light we want to be. But when we look at ourselves through Scripture, it's never that simple. We are far more complicated than that. And the reality is that all of us are this strange mix of kind of good and kind of not so good. Uh, sometimes blazingly good and sometimes terribly wicked. And it all gets meshed together into what we are as human beings. So let's look. We'll start. We're going to read kind of slowly through it. Uh, set the stage of the backdrop beginning actually in verse 30, chapter 33. Uh, verse 18, it says, Later, having traveled all the way from Padan Aram, Jacob arrived safely at the town of Shechem in the land of Canaan. There he set up camp outside of the town, and Jacob bought the plot of land where he camped from the family of Hamor, the father of Shechem, 
for 1,000, I'm sorry, 100 pieces of silver. And there he built an altar and named it El Elohe Israel, God, the God of Israel. In chapter 34, one day Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, the only daughter, by the way, and Leah, went to visit some of the young women who lived in the area. But when the local prince Shechem, son of Hamor the Hivite, saw Dinah, he seized her and raped her. But then he fell in love with her and tried to win her affection with tender words. He went to his father Hamor and said, Give me this young girl. I want to marry her. That's where the story starts. And we're going to look at uh, the main characters, three main scenes, three main characters in this story. And they all exhibit incredible similarity in uh, how they respond to the situation they're in. So we're going to look through these. And the first character in the story is Dinah. Dinah is, just so you know, this comes right out of Scripture. My diligent study has revealed this, that she was in eighth grade. Okay, so I'm making that part of. Uh, she's in eighth grade. She's young. The language definitely depicts her as a, probably pretty young, eighth, ninth grade uh, girl. Um, and we're going to look through these categories. Each of these characters has something very good that's driving them. But that good thing gets taken to an extreme and is out of balance in their life. Uh, then they go through a process of rationalizing their behavior, and they come to a point of no return where they cross a certain line in the sand uh, and fall into um, sin, and then it points out the consequences of that sin. Uh, so let's look, starting with Dinah, how this works. Uh, what is the good? Well, it says that she went out... She went out to see the ladies of the land, okay? The eighth grade girl, okay? The good, this is the good in every eighth grade girl. Eighth grade girls all love to belong to the group, okay? This is actually not true of just eighth grade girls, but it's something that God has put in us as human beings, that we all need to belong, right? Now, some of us have done so poorly at this and have been rejected so much, we've kind of given up on it. We live as loners. But it's not because at one point there wasn't the need to belong, Right? Uh, we just did it so poorly, we've given up. But the truth is, uh, we need to belong to a group. God's created us to be in relationship and community. And long about middle school, most of us come to an awareness of this need. Uh, before that, we're kind of in our own la-la land. Um, uh, when our youngest daughter was uh, at home, and was in fact, we used to call it Kelly Land because she could just go there. But, you know, you hit middle school and you leave that kind of make-believe world of loneliness and you start discovering there's other people and you want to belong to your group. And I think that's very much what's happening here with Dinah. Now, I'll, I'll confess, I'm reading into the text a wee bit, but I think it's there, okay? And as we see uh, what happens with Shechem and kind of who he is, um, it may not be stretching it that much. She wants to be accepted. She's bored. Uh, she's the only daughter. She wants some, some friends. She wants to belong. She wants to be part of, you know, middle school youth group, right? And so she, she says she goes out to see some of the women, some of the local girls, looking for friends to fit in. Uh, that is a good thing. Okay, and that's a God-given gift that God draws us to relationships with other human beings. But there's always the danger that those good things be taken to extremes 
and become unbalanced in our life, get out of control. Now, this is where I really, okay, I'll I'll admit, okay, I'm going to make the rest of this up, okay? So if you're a hardcore, you call me an eisegete, whatever, but um, I'm going to do it anyway, okay? Uh, The extreme, the the extreme of, of wanting to belong is a willingness to do whatever to fit in, right? To compromise our values and standards in order to fit in to give up our own standards and morals to belong to the group. And oftentimes this is the way peer pressure works. Uh, peer pressure demands uh, us to conform to the group. And a lot of times the group is not terribly noble or good or pure. Well, how did it work with her? Well, I imagine it going something like this. Um, and part of this comes not so much from here, but in the next section where we see something about Shechem. Um, you know, Shechem raped Dinah, and it would be very easy to categorize Shechem as some kind of horrible monster, right? To see this guy lurking around the out dark alleys of the city, and he sees, you know, Dinah walk by, and he puts on his wolf fangs, and he jumps out, and he grabs her by the hair, and he drags her by the hair back to his cave, and he beats her and rapes her, right? But that's not the, that's not the picture we get, actually, of Shechem. Actually, he's seen as an upright, upstanding citizen who's well-respected in the community, as a guy who's honorable in his conduct and attitude. Uh, He, uh, after this, we find him longing to woo Dinah to himself. And he says, says literally, he speaks to her heart, sweet nothings, you know. He's, He's a kind of guy who's sensitive, all right. He's not a horrible person, okay. He does a horrible thing. But the reality is he's not portrayed in this passage as a monster. He's actually portrayed as quite a good guy, kind of an upstanding model citizen of his town. Right? And that's where this text bothers us some. You know, we want him to be a monster. He's not. Right? So how did they meet? I don't, I, don't, I don't picture him grabbing her, dragging her away, and raping her. I think it happened more like this. Uh, you know, Diana goes, starts hanging out with the middle school girls at the mall, where all good middle schools gather. So malls were built and designed for. And they're all hanging around, and they're doing what all middle school girl, girls do, right? They're scoping out the guys. And along comes Shechem, and they all kind of go, ah, right? They all kind of swoon. Oh, he's so handsome. He's so good looking. He's rich. His father's the mayor of the town. He drives a fancy car, right? They're all getting excited. Their hearts are beating. And uh, Dinah, she's getting caught up in this, you know. She's excited. She's never had these kind of feelings before. And Shechem, uh, being a, an 11th grader, quite, quite a bit older, um, notices their attention. And he notices Dinah, right? And he is very interested in her. He is attracted to her, right? So he enters into the circle of girls and he starts a conversation and they all decide to go to a movie together and he works it out where he's sitting at the movie next to Dinah, right? And he, in the darkness, takes advantage of the moment to put his arm around her. And Dinah, you know, just is melting with all this great attention. And uh, she is eating this up. Here's this handsome, good-looking 11th grader who thinks she is hot and she's just this melting inside, Right? To add to it all, as we read through the story, we find that Jacob uh, is not a model father in the story. 
In fact, after it's reported that Dinah is raped, you know what Jacob's response is? Nothing. Silence, right? You compare that and contrast that with later in Genesis, Genesis when Joseph is kidnapped, Jacob is, is, is beside himself with agony. But at this, nothing, right? Jacob doesn't speak till the very end of the story, and the only thing he, he speaks is to the wickedness of, of his sons when they kill everybody, right? Not a word about his daughter. So here's a girl who's not close to her father, who is not the apple of her father's eye, who feels in many ways distance and detached, and is probably longing for male attention. And here's a guy who's giving it to her, and it's melting her heart, and she's getting excited. And after the movie, Shechem invites her to his house to play video games. Right? Okay, I'm reading into it a little. Um, well, she starts compromising things because she wants to fit in. She wants to be liked. She wants to belong. And there comes a point in all of, all of our behavior when we go down this path where we have to start inventing our own reality, right? Because uh, when Shechem invites her to come play video games at his house, you know, red flags start going off. Uh, and actually, in the, in the, uh, this, this is not exaggerating, in this context, in this culture, just for her to go out of her house and go into town was kind of a big step. It wasn't done in those days. And on our day, teens are quite free. They, they have a lot of independence. They go. In, in Dinah's day, just going to town actually was taking a huge and dangerous step in a wrong direction. Right? She, just by doing that, was really putting herself in a very vulnerable position because it just wasn't done in those days. You stayed home. Girls this age stayed home, and they helped their mom with chores. They didn't go wandering around the streets looking for girlfriends, right? And so red flags are going off, and when the red flags go off, it starts saying, danger, danger, warning, warning, run, right? But we have this great mechanism in our, in our thinking that we start rationalizing what's going on, right? We invent our own story, and I don't know what her story is, but it could have been something like this. Uh, he loves me, right? And it feels so good. He's, I, think, I think I'm in love. I think, I think we're going to get married. And I love this guy, right? And he's so kind. And he's so caring. And he, he loves me too. And he's interested in me. And unlike my father who's disinterested and could care less about me, here's a guy who's taking notice of me. He won't hurt me. I can feel safe with him. He will protect me, right? He won't harm me. And she starts rationalizing her choices. Well, she ends up at his house. And, uh, of course, he never was interested in video games. And that becomes obvious quite soon. And he starts crossing the line. And what was at first simple affection now turns towards the consuming of his lust and his desires. And whatever good intentions he started out with, and we'll talk about him in a minute, it soon gets out of control And now she knows she's in trouble, and she tries to stop him. She makes it clear that she's not ready for that, but it's too late. She's put herself in harm's way, and she cannot protect herself, and Shechem takes advantage of her. And there are consequences. Um, It says that that soon, in verse 5, soon Jacob heard that Shechem had defiled his daughter. Um, 
it says in verse 2 that he seized her, he raped her, he shamed her. Right? Uh, she lost something very precious that day, didn't she? Right? She, he took from her something she did not freely or willingly give. And with that comes shame and defilement. Right? Even though she didn't willingly do it, even though she didn't choose it, even though she was very much a victim, she still suffers the consequences of being shamed and used. Not only that, but it sets in motion a series of, of events, of the effects of which uh, are devastating for both families. Okay, at, the end of, at the end of this week, right, uh, what she set in motion wrecks an entire family and an entire village. Right? Uh, we think often that sin is a private matter. Right? We think, you know, it's just between me and my own conscience that I do this, that I sin, that I do what I know is not right. But sin is never private. Right? Sin always has dramatic consequences that sweep far and wide and affect entire families and sometimes entire communities. Right? Sin is never private. It's never something we keep to ourselves. They have consequences, and those consequences often go far beyond us to many around us. Right? Um, scripture doesn't say this, but I want to add what I would call the balance point. Okay, in each of these situations, there's a good thing that gets out of control to an extreme, and what it needs is balance to be brought back in. And the balance point here is this. Dinah needed to balance her desire for belonging with true caring. Right? She needed to balance belonging with caring. Uh, she needed, first of all, to care for a Shechem. Right? Uh, when, we, when we compromise ourselves to fit into a group, in the end we're showing great lack of care for the group because we encourage the group to go down a path of unrighteousness. Right? And that's uncaring. It is always right to stand up to the group when they are crossing moral boundaries and stand up to the group and say, look, it's not right. But we don't want to do that because why? Well, we're pretty sure we will be laughed at. We will be rejected. Right? We will be kicked out of the group. Right? But if we truly care about the group, if they truly are our friends, and belonging means what? It means relationship. It means friendship. If we really care about them as our friends, we will not allow them to blindly go down a path of self-destruction. We will stand up for what is right. We will speak the truth, and we will not do anything to fit in. Right? Secondly, we'll care enough about ourselves. Okay, we'll care about them. We'll care enough about ourselves to protect our own character and integrity. Right? Thirdly, we'll care enough about those who love us, our family, our parents, our uh, ultimately God himself, that we will respect what's right. right? Uh, Dinah threw all that away, ignored that. And she was out of control, and it, was, uh, it cost her dearly. We need to draw a firm line in the sand and determine not to compromise what is right in order to fit in. Right? Well, that's Dinah's story. Uh, now let's turn the, the focus to Shechem. Uh, it says that uh, Shechem defiled Dinah 
but, but since his sons were out in the fields hearing, uh, herding Jacob's livestock, Jacob said nothing. He keeps his silence until they returned. Uh, but Hamor, Shechem's father, came to discuss the matter with Jacob. Meanwhile, Jacob's sons had come in from the field as soon as they heard what happened. And they were shocked and furious that their sister had been raped. Shechem had done a disgraceful thing against Israel, something that should never have been done. But Hamor tried to speak with Jacob and his sons. And he said, My son Shechem is truly in love with your daughter. Please let him marry her. In fact, let's arrange other marriages too. You give us your daughters for our sons and we'll give you our daughters for your sons. And you may live among us. The land is open to you. Settle here and trade with us. Feel free to buy property in the area. Shechem himself spoke to Dinah's father and brothers. Please be kind to me, he said, and let me marry her. I will give you whatever you ask. No matter what the dowry or gift you demand, I will gladly pay it. Just give me the girl as my wife. Okay. Uh, what's Shechem's story? Well, Shechem, there is good. Okay, it's important to see that he's not a monster totally. There is a part of what Shechem is about that is good. And the good in Shechem's life is passion. Okay. Passion is a good thing. In fact, passion is a gift from God. Uh, passion is something God created within us that draws us not just to, to friendship, as in Dinah, seeking relationship, but passion is actually taking it to another level, a kind of friendship or closeness that experiences deep personal intimacy. Right? God has put that in the heart of every human being, that we would long for connectedness and intimacy, ultimately expressed in our relationship with God himself. Okay? And there is something in us that's driven to passion, that is a good thing. Uh, it's intended to drive us to, to find a soulmate, somebody that we connect with in a very special way to come together in the unity of marriage. It is a longing for this deep intimacy with another human being and to share with such closeness of intimacy and touch and soul and heart that we become one with them. Right? That is a gift from God, and it's a gift given universally. Okay? It's not something just given to Christians, by the way. Okay? God's general grace gives this longing to all human beings. And Shechem had this God-given heart and desire for intimacy. In fact, it's interesting, uh, his longing is not just to use this girl and throw her away. Right? He wants to marry her. Okay? There is something wholesome in his passion, even though it gets abused. Right, there's something in him that longs for soulmate, soul connection. Uh, it says that his soul clings to her. It says he speaks to her heart. He says, I'll do anything. And in the end, okay, you've got to give the guy some credit here. In the end, he'll do anything. He'll circumcise himself for this girl. Okay, that's pretty serious commitment, actually. <laughs> All right? That's like maybe more love than I would have. I don't know. I mean, that would be a tough decision. And he, he I mean, he is... He's serious about this, right? He'll do anything, right? Uh, he, he's a guy who embodies God-given passion. But anything God-given can be taken to an extreme. It gets out of control, it loses balance, and it becomes a problem, right? And he takes it to the extreme when his passion turns to evil desire and consuming lust, right? Uh, 
And in, th- in this case, and maybe in all of these cases, extreme may be not a great word. Because extreme kind of, extreme kind of implies the idea that it's more of something. Right? But the reality is, it's extreme in the sense that it's not balanced. It's going to one side of the spectrum or the other and not keeping a center or a balance. But the reality is that when we lose balance and go to the far extreme one way or the other, we don't end up with more of what we could have had in the middle. We end up with actually much less. Right? Lust is, is a cheap, cheap substitute for true passion and oneness. Right? What he seeks and what he f- goes to when he goes to an extreme is not more, it's way, way less. It's cheap and it's dirty. It's, it's shallow. Right? Um, but it is, uh, you know, lust is a passion that's out of control and misdirected. And it's the indiscriminate desire for only the physical part of intimacy without true love or meaningful relationship. But he rationalizes it, right? Uh, given that he is the kind of person I think the text describes him as an upstanding, honorable person, and not a monster, uh, he must justify his behavior, right? He must rationalize what he does, and he does. He says, well, you know, I love this girl. Um, I must have this girl. Uh, oftentimes it gets expressed like this, if you really loved me, you would give yourself to me. Right? It would be how you show your love. But it's not what true love is. It is, in the end, actually very selfish. It is not giving, it is only taking. Uh, but he rationalizes it away, and he doesn't see that. And he crosses the line. And his love turns a very evil and wicked corner, and rather than giving himself selflessly to Dinah and doing what is right by her, he very selfishly takes from her what she does not freely give. Uh, He sins by violating her, by raping her. And he's no longer caring for her, he's now only caring for himself. And it comes with terrible consequences. Now we jump to the end of the story. You know, the consequence is he, he does lose his life over this. Okay? It costs him his life. But let me look at a consequence that happens before that. Go back up to verse 3. It says when he, uh, he had raped her, it says, and, and, he, and he loved her. Uh, New Living says he fell in love with her. Literally, the, the verse says, and his soul clung to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. And he loved the girl and spoke to the heart of the girl. Okay? I love that phrase, his soul clung to her. Okay, he was, his soul was now attached to her, right? Now, why do I say that's a consequence of sin, of this specific sin? Well, it is because because of this. God created us as human beings to connect and bond in deep soul-to-soul relationship. And a lot of what causes this deep bonding or connection is physical touch, right? And uh, scientists, psychologists have studied this, and we know this to be true, that we, when we enter into the, this kind of sexual intimacy with somebody, it's more than just a, uh, you know, a momentary pleasure. It bonds our soul to soul. And God designed it this way. It's, it's how babies, when they're born, attach to their mom. Skin-to-skin, nurturing contact and touch bonds a child, an infant, to its mother. And as we grow older and we marry... It's part of how God designed us to connect and attach with our partner. And that's why sexual intimacy in marriage is a good and honorable thing that ought to be 
practice frequently, right? Because it bonds us. It unites us together. But here's the problem for Shechem. He is now bonded to her, soul to soul, to somebody who's not his wife, and he's not even sure he has permission to marry. Right? A huge problem. And, and on top of that, another consequence is that you know, he has just gone from pure good love that had a shot to shaming and dishonoring her. Right? It's hard to sell love now. Right? It's hard to convince her that he's a trustworthy guy whose love is pure and honorable. All right, so he's got to start putting on a good sales job, right? It says he starts speaking to her heart because he realizes he's blown it, right? If he had any shot at true love before, he has blown it now. And the defenses go up, the guard goes up, and Dinah is no longer impressed or enthralled with him. She's now terrified of this guy. She has been wounded and damaged by this guy. Okay, her inner person is in turmoil because of what he's done, right? So now his hope, you know, so here's the dilemma. Now he is bound to the soul of Dinah, who is now putting up walls against him. That's a serious consequence, right? He's just backed himself into a huge corner. He's going to have a very difficult time getting out of, right? Even if he somehow is able to pull off marrying her, she's going to be a million miles away from him. Right? And what he longs for in intimacy, he will never have with her for a long time until they work through a lot of healing and woundedness because she is now on guard against him. Right? So he tries to speak to her heart. He tries to win her. He tries to woo her. And it becomes clear that she's not impressed and she's afraid and she's wounded and she is hurt. So he goes to plan B. Uh, he locks her. He, he kidnaps her. Okay? He holds her hostage in his home and he gets the help of his father to go negotiate a marriage. Right? He's going to have this girl right? at all costs. He is going to marry this girl. And he goes to every length he can to secure a marriage. Right? Um, but it's a marriage that is doomed. Right? It is a marriage that is without God's consent or Jacob's consent. And uh, it's a small town, and uh, the gossip has already started flying, and Jacob already knows about it. And it's not long before his brothers, uh, Dinah's brothers know as well. And the end of the story, as we know, Shechem pays with his own life. There are consequences to sin. <clears throat> there are serious consequences. Um, balance point. Um, you know, are we, are we in control of our passions? Right? If there's ever a point in our sexually charged world where we need balance, it's probably here. Um, the balance point is this. We need to balance passion with true love. Um, true love is always giving and caring, not taking. Um, how are we dealing with our passions that can so easily and quickly turn to lust? Uh, uh, this is actually not a recent survey. It's actually an old survey. Uh, I believe the year was 2003. Um, uh, Internet Filter Review reported that 47% of Christians, okay, almost half of all Christians, admit pornography is a major problem in their homes. Wow. 
47% of Christians. Right? 2002, uh, Rick Warren's church Saddleback did a survey of 6,000 pastors. They found that among, and this is in 2002, among 6,000 pastors, 30% had viewed internet porn within the last 30 days. Okay? Now, the, the amazing thing with those numbers is that since 2002, uh, internet porn hits have doubled and in some pl- cases tripled since 2002. Okay, so does that mean that among pastors it's doubled and tripled? Holy, I hope not. Okay, but the reality is uh, it's a huge problem. It's a huge problem. Being a pastor or a missionary, being a full-time Christian worker does not exempt you from this, right? And that's one of the brilliant things about this story. In this story, the good guys are pretty wicked, right? Uh, the heroes of the story are quite morally flawed. It's a great picture of humanity. Are we taking charge of this part of our life? Are we bringing balance to our passion by bringing it carefully under God's unfailing, selfless love? Okay, when our passion is driven by self-centeredness, it will always end in sin and ruin. The goal of passion is intimacy with, uh, within the context of marriage and within the boundaries of true, pure, God-given love. Right? Anything else will go badly the wrong direction. Right? Uh, the third set, the last characters in the story are uh, Dinah's brothers, Jacob's sons, specifically Simeon and Levi. Uh, it says this about them. Since Shechem had defiled their sister Dinah, Jacob's sons responded deceitfully to Shechem. Okay, so right up front we know that what they're about to propose is not good. It is deceitful. It is treacherous, okay? They have been plotting, and it seems likely that the rumors have been flying and small town, you know, small town gossip travels faster than the speed of light. I've lived in small town. I know how it works, right? Um, the word gets around. Do you hear what Shechem did to Dinah, right? The brothers find out. They've been out in the fields herding the cattle and sheep. On the long walk home, they're plotting, right? They've had time to think this through. And when they get back to the house, they have a plan, right? And this is the plan, They said, we couldn't possibly allow this because you're not circumcised. It would be a great disgrace for our sister to marry a man like you. But here's the solution. If every man among you will be circumcised like we are, then we will give you our daughters and we'll take your daughters for ourselves. We will live among you and become one people. But if you don't agree to be circumcised, we'll take her and be on our way. Seems like a reasonable enough plan, you know. Uh, and I'm sure they're thinking, I'm sure these guys are thinking, there's no way they're going to do this. I mean, who would do this? <laughs> who in the right mind would do this? The whole town? Um, but they do. Hamor and Shechem think it's a great plan. Well, this is easy, right? And uh, Hamor and Shechem rush to the city gate and they sell it to the townspeople this way. Look, Jacob and his family is rich. If we become one with them, it won't be long and we'll own all their wealth. We'll freely trade with them. Okay, and they tap into their greed. We can do the whole thing on greed. We won't. 
uh, tap into their greed, and they agree. They all circumcise themselves, right? Uh, but all, all along, uh, Simeon and Levi have this plan. Um, mean, um, three days later, when their wounds were still sore, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, who were Dinah's full brothers, took their swords and entered the town without opposition, and they slaughtered every male there, including Hamor and Shechem. And they took their sister Dinah from his house and returned to the camp. Meanwhile, the rest of Jacob's sons arrived, finding the men slaughtered. They plundered the town because of because their sister had been defiled there. They seized all the flocks and herds and donkeys, everything they could lay their hands on, inside and outside. They looted all their wealth, plundered their houses, took their little children and wives, and led them away as captives. Okay, these guys are just really sick people, right? This is the 12 patriarchs of Israel, okay? And they, first of all, use God's holy covenant of circumcision in a very deceitful, horrible way. Because something that was holy, it was to be a mark of God's covenant relationship with them, and they deceitfully use it to a very wicked end. When these guys are at their weakest moment, they go in uh, and slay helpless people who cannot fight back, right? Well, believe it or not, there is something good behind all this, okay? There is something, there is good, believe it or not, and the good is these brothers have a very strong sense of justice. Okay? Justice is a good thing. Justice is seeking that everyone gets what's due them. All right? Interestingly, Jacob is silent. Jacob does not seek justice. He seems quite indifferent. But the brothers are not. They, would, they will defend the honor of their sister. They know that their sister has been dishonored. And justice is the right response to sin in the world. And it is a, a judgment response. Right? It's... It's condemning sin. That's a good thing. But it's taken to an extreme. And their justice, their, their righteous anger, quickly turns into blind rage and hate. Right? It's extreme. It is not balanced. Right? It's out of control. It becomes blind rage. And uh, the cruelness and sickness of it is that they have three days to cool off. You know, three days they wait, but in those three days, instead of cooling off, it just fuels their rage. And they go in, and instead of just taking Dinah, you know, maybe justice would have been to, to take Shechem's life, or maybe Shechem and his father. But they kill every living male in the town, right? Excessive, right? Out of control, hate for these people who are innocent. Right, who had nothing to do with it, who had shown themselves actually to be quite friendly, generous, and kind. Right? Extreme. And they rationalize it because uh, they say he deserved it. You know? And he, they end the story in verse 31. Should we let Shechem treat our sister like a prostitute? They feel justified in what they're doing. But they cross a huge line when they kill innocent people and rob them blind. Okay? Pillage and steal everything in the village. Right? Uh, they have abused the covenant. They have slaughtered innocent people. They have done really a horrible thing. Are there consequences? Yes, there are consequences. Um, they got rich, which ironically, every instance in Genesis where their women are abused, the men end up enriched by it. Um, and they do. And it would be easy to think that they get 
away with this, but they don't. In fact, Genesis 49 says this, Simeon and Levi are two of a kind. This, um, Jacob is, is blessing his 12 sons, right? On his deathbed. And he says this about Simeon and Levi. Simeon and Levi are two of a kind. Their weapons are instruments of violence. May I never join in their meetings. May I never be a party to their plans. For in their anger they murdered men and they crippled oxen just for sport. A curse on their anger, for it is fierce. A curse on their wrath, for it is cruel. Okay, their whole life, the consequence is this, their whole life, they bear the mark on their character of what they have done. Their father does not forget it. And the truth is, it marks their character. When we sin, it marks us. It puts on us a black mark that we carry the days of our life unless... It comes under God's grace. Well, what's the balance point? Uh, the balance point was uh, that they needed to balance their justice with mercy. Right? They needed to balance justice with mercy. Um, their justice was extreme and out of control because they didn't understand the true justice is always born out of love. Right? Um, and we see that model ultimately by God himself. Uh, it's interesting in this story, who really loves Dinah? <laughs> it doesn't seem like anybody really loves her. It's one of the great vacuums in this story. Uh, Shechem, in the end, doesn't really love her. Her own father doesn't seem to love her. Her brothers, in the end, seem more concerned about the family honor. They don't really even seem to love her. Right? Um, what a difference true love would have made in the story if they had understood that justice must be born out of love for people. God is a just God, but God is a loving God. And this story is really in many ways a great picture of God's love for us. Um, Their justice would have been right and deserved if it had really been born out of a genuine love for Dinah, that they were grieved because she had been shamed and wounded. God's justice is very much linked to his love. God created every human being on this earth, and he loves us deeply. And it grieves him when we sin against each other, and it grieves him when we bring that sin upon ourselves. And it is God's right, just response to judge sin. It is born out of his love for us that he's grieved when we sin against each other. And he seeks justice and judgment. But his, his, his justice is always balanced with his mercy and his love. Um, the truth is, you know, in this story... Which character do you most identify with? If you were to put yourself with one of these characters, now, I don't want to identify with any of them. That's why I don't like this story, right? I want to know who the good guy is. I want to be with the good guys, right? But if we're honest, if we evaluate our life against the backdrop of these characters, you know, are we the person who's consumed by a need to belong and compromises ourselves often to fit in? We so long to please people, right, that we water down 
doing what's right? Are we a person who's consumed by our lust? You know, we have substituted deep intimacy with God and with other human beings for a cheap substitute, right? Uh, And we are living out of control. Are we a person who's driven by anger, right? And oftentimes we find ourselves out of control, consumed by rage. Interestingly, in this story, their rage was motivated by, because um, you know, they didn't get honor, right? It's incredible. In all of these cases, what's at the heart of it is selfishness, right? We're like that, aren't we? We are, we are driven to extremes because we really care only about ourselves. And God looks down at that and he sees us and we're like these characters in the story and we deserve his wrath and his judgment. But instead, God sent his own son to take our place on the cross and there he poured out his wrath for our sin. And he loved us, but he judged sin. Right? And God calls us to that kind of life. He calls us to the cross. And the only way we will bring balance into our life is when we come to a point of realizing our self-centeredness, confessing these extreme tangents in our life, and going to the cross. We cannot overcome these things in our own strength. We do it through the mercy and grace of Christ. We do it through the work of the cross that Jesus accomplished on the cross. Let's pray. Father, we just stand amazed that you could watch the wickedness that goes on in the world and not just wipe us all out. We see a story like this and we're just, it's just mind-boggling that you didn't just wipe out Simeon and Levi You didn't just send fire down on Shechem. Um, That you didn't judge Jacob more sternly. But Lord, we we recognize that if we're honest, we really do need to put ourselves in this story. As people who are good, but who often let our good intentions go far astray and lead us into sin and terrible things. Lord, we need your grace as Jacob and his sons needed your grace. And Father, we just come and stand before you now, before the cross of Christ, and just acknowledge our desperate need for what Jesus did, our our desperate need for his blood to cleanse us and wash us and change us. To be people of extreme, from people of extremes to be people of balance. People who live anchored firmly in your love and in your truth. And who know how to receive grace and know how to extend grace to others. Lord, we praise you for the cross. And thank you for your love in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.
www.ghostbusters.org.